Hey folks, welcome and thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the BIOS Podcast. I'm head editor, Drew Ashar. We are so excited to welcome David R. Liu, Richard Merkin Professor and Director of the Merkin Institute of Transformative Technologies in Healthcare, Core Institute Member and Vice Chair of the Faculty at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. We're thrilled to have David on to discuss the storied history of gene editing, advancements from the Liu Lab, and the future of the field guided by Dr. Liu's mindset surrounding developing new gene editing systems and technologies via his entrepreneurial endeavors. We are incredibly excited to welcome David, and thank you once again for tuning in. Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome David Liu, professor at Harvard and vice chair of the faculty at the Broad Institute of the show today. Thank you once again for joining us, David. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Claudia Hill. David, we'd love to kick things off. Perhaps if you could rewind the clock for us and share your background and a bit of your career overview to help with our audience here today to get to know you better. We'd love if you can share. Thanks. Sure. Well, I grew up in Riverside, California, suburb of LA, and uh, my parents came from China via Taiwan to study graduate school uh, in UCLA, and and my sister and I grew up in in Riverside through the public school system there. I I think first fell in love with science just through spending lots and lots of time in my backyard studying bugs and plants and doing experiments of questionable ethics on them when I was a kid and and just uh, becoming very curious about the natural world. Then I went to Harvard for my undergraduate studies and was very fortunate to work in the lab of Professor E.J. Corey, now my colleague and good friend. E.J. was uh, brave enough to welcome me into his lab as a freshman even though at the time he didn't have any other undergraduate researchers. And I fell in love with chemistry at Harvard, both through working in EJ's lab and through the many outstanding teachers I had uh, as a chemistry student at Harvard. Then did my PhD at UC Berkeley in the lab of Professor Peter Schultz. And then right after getting my PhD in, in, in May of 1999, I started very shortly afterwards as an assistant professor at Harvard in July of 1999. And that's where I've been for the past 24 years almost. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing, David. And perhaps connect some of the experience you've had with us throughout your career. What's been your North Star or, or the common thread connecting your work here? So I think what has always driven the research side of of my life and and really much of the non-professional side of my life as well is a curiosity about the natural world and then a, a belief, naive at first, but I think increasingly realistic and tantalizing that our ability to understand and manipulate molecules has reached a point that we can now 
imagine and and bring to life molecules that can have a really amazing positive impact on on people on societies so i think my love of chemistry and and this desire to understand and manipulate molecules just like when i was a kid i would manipulate legos and to some extent still play with legos that kind of viewing molecules as sort of real life real size legos that can actually serve as medicines or as new technologies um that's been a, a major a major theme in my life that's driven many of the professional and non-professional activities I've pursued and maybe I'd also say that somewhere along the way of, of studying the sciences I became completely in awe of evolution and realizing the beauty the simplicity the the power of evolution and when I think that uh love for biological evolution and how we might harness it to create study and ultimately generate tailor-made molecules with properties of our choosing uh, not ones that nature chose to evolve that has proven to be another major theme that's run through much of our our research fabulous thanks for sharing david and I'll pass it off to Claudia now to talk about our first topic here, the Lou Lab and advancements in gene editing. Thanks, Chaz. I'm so excited to talk to you about your pioneering work in gene editing. So let's kick it off. Over the past decades, the gene editing field has advanced at an unprecedented speed. As a gene editing pioneer, we'd love to understand a little bit more about the field and how it's progressed from someone on the inside. Gene editing has revolutionized science as we know it. Can you tell us a little bit more about its storied history? Where did the field start and when? Sure. So I think there are many reasonable answers to that question, depending on exactly how you define gene editing. But I think if you take a broader historical view, gene editing really began pretty much as soon as we, we meaning the field, the scientists, life scientists, understood what the structure of DNA was which was in the 1950s, 1953, the famous debut of the structure that um, James Watson, Francis Crick, and Rosalind Franklin, among others, contributed to. Understanding that DNA is, well, what's historically been called from time to time, the transforming principle. DNA is the, the stuff that determines many of our traits, the stuff that we pass down to our progeny, the stuff that we inherit from our parents. I think when you appreciate that DNA is that powerful thread that runs throughout our lives and connects generations above and below us, it immediately raises the question, well, how can we manipulate it? How can we understand the relationship between our DNA and our lives? And when that relationship has introduced a difficulty, a genetic disease, for example, because of a misspelling in our DNA. What can we do about it? So I think for as long as we've known the structure of DNA, now 70 years plus, scientists have, have always imagined and aspired to being able to manipulate 
the sequence of DNA in living systems so that we can study living systems with the, in the most powerful high resolution ways and so that we can perhaps treat conditions that are caused by mutations in our DNA, use our ability to change DNA to improve crops, make them more nutritious, make them grow better, for example, and many, many, many other examples. So, you know, it it, it still feels a little bit surreal, and, and I certainly feel incredibly fortunate every day when, you know, I get to go into uh, the office or the lab or interact with my students and appreciate that the era of gene editing is is now is happening now the era of human gene editing is happening now and it's really taken 70 years of incredible creativity and and depth of analysis innovation in the life sciences to get us here so the the earliest forms of gene editing as i would define it where you're making specific changes in the sequence of a specific region of DNA that you choose, not that's chosen randomly, you know, began no later than the 1970s in model organisms like yeast, but also moving into mice probably by the 1980s. And in those early studies, researchers found that you could introduce a piece of DNA that had a change in it that you wanted to install into that cell. And once in a blue moon, that piece of DNA would somehow end up replacing the original DNA sequence. In other words, you would introduce that edit. Through a process we now call homologous recombination. The kicker though, the challenge is that homologous recombination by itself is incredibly inefficient. And indeed, many of the mechanisms that our cell use our cells use to try to avoid being invaded by viruses make it so that simply introducing a piece of DNA into a cell doesn't generally result in that piece of DNA replacing the original DNA sequence in the cell. But it happens at a detectable frequency, something like, depending on the organism, it might be one in a million, one in a thousand. And then later on, researchers, including uh, Maria Jason and, and, and others, realize that if you introduce a cut a break in the DNA double helix, you will stimulate that homologous recombination process, orders, multiple orders of magnitude. And now you could get DNA sequences to replace other sequences with an efficiency that was not just barely detectable, but, you know, was maybe 1% of the time, which was a, a huge improvement. Not efficient enough to be useful for the kinds of therapeutic gene editing applications that are now in widespread use, but, but um, enough to, to be useful as a research tool and to stimulate activity in the area, to stimulate students and, and young professors who really wanted to, to start to use this newfound ability to manipulate the sequence of DNA in living cells. So around the time that the 1990s that cutting DNA was being used to stimulate homologous recombination, one of the earliest forms of, of gene editing, researchers started to develop ways of programmably 
binding to DNA, meaning you give me a sequence of DNA letters and I can give you a protein that binds to that particular DNA sequence, even in a sea of a vast genome of unrelated DNA sequences, non-target sequences. One of the, the first robust programmable DNA binding technologies uh, were zinc fingers, zinc finger arrays. These were based on small naturally occurring protein motifs. There are hundreds in, in our bodies, but the unique and, and really beautiful thing about zinc fingers is that unlike other kinds of DNA binding proteins known at the time that sort of evolved a three-dimensional interface that matches the interface of the DNA sequence that they, that they are binding, zinc finger nucleases evolved a very direct relationship between the sequence of amino acids that binds to DNA and the identity of the DNA bases that they engage. So this raised the possibility that you could design tailor-made zinc fingers to bind DNA sequences of your choosing, not of nature's choosing. And those zinc finger arrays led by work from uh, many pioneering scientists, including uh, Aaron Klug and Carl Pabo and others, really were the first robust examples of proteins that we could program to bind to DNA sequences of our choosing. Now, researchers connected the various observations that I just described and realized that you could attach DNA cutting enzymes to these DNA binding zinc finger arrays that are now programmable. And the result is you could create a programmable nuclease, a programmable enzyme that would cut a DNA sequence of our choosing. So zinc finger nucleases were the first robust class of programmable nucleases. They were followed by the tail nucleases, also called talons. Tail protein arrays like zinc finger arrays are made entirely of amino acids, of, of proteins. And like zinc finger arrays, tail arrays have a, a sort of code where specific amino acids can be used to specify binding to specific DNA bases. And in fact, the code for, for, for talons is a little bit easier to work with, a little bit more general, uh, at least among the publicly known sequences than, than the zinc finger code. So talons were in the process of taking over the gene editing fields. These were programmable nucleases that would cut DNA at sites of your choosing. And then along came CRISPR-Cas9, the elucidation of its biology, its first use in gene editing by the now uh, famous uh, Genic uh, Doudna Charpentier uh, science paper. CRISPR-Cas9 is also a DNA cutting enzyme, just like a zinc finger nuclease or a talon, but unlike zinc fingers or, or tail arrays, CRISPR-Cas9 engages its DNA sequence in a manner programmed by a piece of RNA called the guide RNA. Now, all three of these foundational classes of gene editing agents that I think really initiated the modern era of gene editing, they fundamentally do the same thing. 
they take the DNA double helix, they take a chromosome, and they cut it into two pieces. They break both DNA strands in the DNA double helix. And that has two consequences. First, it causes the cell to desperately try to get the ends of the broken DNA back together. The cell recognizes that a double strand break is serious damage. And the cell, cells have evolved mechanisms to try to undo that damage by joining the ends back together. And we think that most of the time, maybe 90% of the time, the ends come back together perfectly and you get the starting sequence before you cut it. If that happens though, and you still have a nuclease around that will recognize that starting sequence, it will just cut the sequence again. So this cycle of cutting and joining happens over and over until the joining occurs in a manner that makes a mistake. And typically the mistake is the deletion of a small number of DNA letters, maybe you know one letter, three letters, five letters, 10 letters. Occasionally it's an insertion of extra DNA letters. We call those deletions and insertions indels. So the cutting and rejoining happens over and over again until the rejoining makes a mistake that changes the DNA sequence enough that the nuclease no longer recognizes it as the target sequence. Then that mutated DNA is a dead end product, becomes an indel. And so those are the, the major consequences of cutting DNA in most eukaryotic cells, these indels, these disrupted gene sequences where some DNA bases are missing or some have been added. And the vast majority of the time doing that will mess up the function of a gene. So these foundational gene editing agents, zinc finger nucleases, tail nucleases, CRISPR-Cas9 nuclease, all share in common that they are very effective ways of disrupting the function of a gene. And that is consistent with the fact that while zinc finger nucleases and tail nucleases are, are human engineered creations based on parts from, from nature, CRISPR-Cas9 is a totally natural system. And it evolved to cut viral DNA sequences to mess up the ability of the virus to replicate and infect other cells. So CRISPR-Cas9 nuclease, the original CRISPR-Cas9, is a natural protein RNA complex that works by recognizing a target DNA sequence naturally in a virus and cutting to mess up that sequence. So as you and, and your listeners can probably deduce, the original and still some of the most useful applications of these programmable nucleases are to disrupt genes, are to cut a, a gene that you wish to disable allow the indels to accumulate at that target site, these mixtures of deletions and insertions, which unfortunately we can't control, but we know that most of the time they will mess up a gene and then you've disabled that gene. And that can be very useful for both basic science research, where frequently the way to study a system is to break a component of it and see what happens. And also for some therapeutic applications. So. There are now a number of clinical trials, around 50, 
ongoing therapeutic gene editing clinical trials in which the gene editing agent, the candidate drug, is, for example, a CRISPR-Cas9 programmed to cut a DNA sequence that is responsible for a certain disease. And if you mess up that DNA sequence, then you might ameliorate the disease. So a specific example is transthyretin amyloidosis, ATTR, where scientists at Intellia and Regeneron have shown that if you use a CRISPR-Cas9 nuclease to cut that DNA sequence, you will disrupt that gene. And by disrupting the gene, you will decrease the amount of protein that the cell makes. And that's a case of a disease where making too much of that protein causes the disease. So you get a therapeutic benefit by messing up the gene. However, as you may already have pieced together, most of the 100,000 or so mutations in the human genome that are known to cause genetic diseases really need to be fixed, not further disrupted in order to treat the disease. So um, in many cases, the mutation that causes the disease has already broken a gene that's important for, for a healthy life. And the most obvious, simplest way to use gene editing to fix that situation is not to cut the already mutated, already broken DNA sequence and mess it up further, but is rather to fix the DNA sequence. And you can't really easily fix a DNA sequence, at least in a person, by cutting it, by breaking the double helix. So that need is what inspired our lab reporting first in 2016 to develop a what would end up being multiple gene editing technologies that all have the same goal, which is correct a target DNA sequence by, by converting one DNA sequence of your choosing to a DNA sequence also of your specification, rather than being limited to primarily messing up a target gene. So I think that's, that's a, an aspect of gene editing that much of the public may not realize that the the sort of earliest uh, foundational gene editing agents were all DNA cutting scissors. And just as my mom replied when I first explained to her how CRISPR-Cas9 works, she said, how are you going to fix DNA with a pair of scissors? Which turned out to be, I think, a much more profound question than she probably realized she was asking. Because scissors don't have information inherently to change one DNA sequence to a new DNA sequence. What they do is they cut the double helix. They break it into two pieces. So the first technology we developed to try to address that unmet need is base editing. So that uh, base editing we, we debuted in 2016. And the first base editors we developed use the targeting mechanism of CRISPR-Cas9 scissors, but we disabled their ability to cut the DNA double helix. So they don't actually make double-stranded cuts in DNA, and therefore they don't generate primarily messed up gene products. 
instead, we just use the disabled scissors as a way to, to home in on, to target a DNA sequence of our choosing. And then the base editor, which is entirely as base editors don't exist in nature. They, they are engineered in our laboratory by combining the, the targeting mechanism of a programmable DNA binding protein with an enzyme that performs chemistry directly on a DNA base, converting one DNA base to another. So a base editor allows you to target a DNA sequence thanks to the disabled CRISPR scissors that is a part of the original base editors, although subsequent base editors now uh, use zinc finger arrays or tail arrays and don't necessarily need to use uh, CRISPR to, to target DNA. Uh, but instead of cutting the DNA, base editors then bring in an enzyme, either taken from nature or evolved in our laboratory, to literally rearrange the atoms of one DNA base to become a different base. So base editors can convert C to T, T to C, A to G, or G to A. It can Base editors can perform other kinds of DNA letter changes as well, but not as robustly as those four changes I just mentioned. So now you can see that uh, unlike the DNA cutting scissors of the zinc finger nucleases, the tail nucleases, and CRISPR-Cas9 nuclease, and related programmable nucleases, which simply cut the DNA double helix, base editors actually are making a change from one DNA sequence to another. And it turns out that those four changes, C to T, T to C, A to G, and G to A, turn out to be four of the most common kinds of, of mutations that cause genetic disease. And therefore, base editors, in theory, can correct around 30% of the known mutations that are associated with genetic diseases. For example, progeria, the rapid aging disease, is caused by a single C in a gene called lamin A becoming a T in a progeria patient. And one of our base editors, we programmed to change that T back into a C by changing the A on the opposite strand back to a G. And doing so in a mouse that has the human progeria mutations and therefore ages very rapidly and dies very young, actually rescues many of the disease symptoms of progeria and allows the mouse to live uh, much, much longer. So base editors have, have now been used by um, thousands of laboratories. There are many hundreds of, of publications using base editors. And there are four clinical trials ongoing, at least four uh, right now, that are using base editors in at least four different countries to treat at least four different diseases, ranging from uh, sickle cell disease to uh, cancer to excessively high cholesterol. And just this past December, we've had the first clinical readout of a base editing clinical trial in which a 13-year-old girl in the UK uh, named Alyssa, who suffered from T-cell leukemia, was given a very poor prognosis after chemotherapy and a bone marrow transplant failed to clear her cancer. And so she was given an experimental base editing base edited therapeutic led by a team of doctors led by Dr. Wasim Kwasim um, at the UCL. And Alyssa's received 
CAR T cells that were triply base edited. They had three base edits in three different genes, something that's very difficult to do with DNA cutting scissors because cutting DNA, especially at multiple places, tends to lead to undesired consequences in the cell. But these triply base edited CAR T cells were given to Alyssa and they cleared her cancer. And she was and, and continues uh, to be considered uh, cancer free, or at least they can't detect her cancer. And everybody's hoping that that continues uh, for for the rest of her life. And then in, in 2019, we developed another kind of precision gene editing technology that once again doesn't make doesn't require double strand breaks in DNA, doesn't work by cutting the DNA double helix, but instead uh, directly converts one DNA sequence to another sequence if you're choosing. And for this 2019 uh, technology called prime editing, the goal was to develop a way to make virtually any kind of small DNA change, convert any letter to any other letter, convert six letters to six different letters, insert extra letters that might be missing in DNA, or delete extra letters that might be causing a genetic disease, like Tay-Sachs disease is caused uh, most commonly by four extra letters, T-A-T-C, inserted into a gene called HEX-A uh, in the human genome. So prime editors work in a in a way that's yet different from nucleases and different from base editors. They basically take a target DNA strand, targeted once again by disabled CRISPR scissors, and they use a specially engineered guide RNA that we call the prime editing guide RNA, or PEG RNA for short, to specify not only where the DNA sequence is that we wish to edit, but also what that edit should be. Then a prime editor uses an engineered enzyme, an engineered reverse transcriptase enzyme, to copy the edited sequence directly from the PEG RNA into the target DNA site. And then it helps orchestrate the DNA repair changes that the cell makes in response to copy that edit onto both DNA strands and make it permanent. So the hallmark of prime editors is that they are incredibly versatile. They can, because they can make virtually any local change to DNA, the vast majority, 90 plus percent of the known pathogenic mutations that are associated with disease uh, can in principle be corrected with a prime editor. And uh, just as we saw with base editing, uh, prime editing has also been now used by uh, many laboratories around the world. Hundreds of publications have been uh, have reported the use of prime editing in a wide variety of cells, ranging from bacteria to plants to to mammals. And uh, while prime editing is too new to have already entered the clinic, it is following closely in the footsteps of base editing. It took base editors about five years to reach people, and it will uh, hopefully take prime editors uh, about the same amount of time and 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 not longer to begin to enter clinical trials, uh, which is especially useful because its versatility means that there are many uh, genetic diseases that in, in principle may be treatable by correcting the root cause of the disease using uh, a prime editor. So that's a very, very long, it's a very, very long narrative 
describing the history of gene editing and and then connecting it with some of uh, our laboratory's activities. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say thank you so much for that for that fantastic walkthrough and linking it to some of the critical contributions that your your lab has made, in, um, including as you've described prime editing, base editing, and and pace and and and, and other things. And as you were describing, you, your research has not only advanced the field, but it's also impacted patients in the clinic. We'd love to dive further into your thinking. Can you share a bit more about how you think about the governing dynamics involved when developing new editing systems? So I always like to tell my my students that the most important aspect of science research is problem selection. So for us, when we are developing new editing systems, it, it never starts with let's just develop a new editing system for the sake of developing one. I don't think it makes sense to develop a new technology just to be different, but rather you you want to pick a problem, uh, something that is an unmet need, something that if solved would really have a great potential impact and then use use the problem to motivate the development of a new technology if that's the goal of the project. So base editing really began, uh, as I described, by recognizing the problem that while nucleases were, these programmable nucleases were these wonderful, groundbreaking, revolutionary, ultimately Nobel Prize winning discoveries, we would need more than ways to cut DNA in order to fix the mutations that cause genetic diseases in most patients. That was the problem. Uh, Base editing was one part of the answer. Prime editing is another part of the answer. And there are still other unmet problems that still need solving in gene editing and, of course, in many other aspects of the life sciences, like how can we insert full-sized healthy genes into target sites of our choosing efficiently and safely and specifically in in living cells. That's largely an unsolved problem still, although there's some really interesting leads that a number of labs, including our own, are following. And another great problem in, in this field broadly defined is, is in delivery. Uh, we have really great ways of delivering these molecular machines, ex vivo or in vivo, into certain kinds of tissues like liver, ex vivo, that is outside the body, we can deliver into bone marrow. But what are better ways we can deliver to the heart or the brain or or the kidney? Those Some of those tissues can be challenging to deliver to, especially if you want to stay away from using uh, certain kinds of viral delivery. So I, I guess I would say that the overall governing dynamic uh, for our lab has always been problem selection, has been don't develop something just for the sake of developing it. Start with the problem and relentlessly try to solve the problem. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for that. I, so I, I guess we'll move on to our second topic, which is academic entrepreneurship. So you've, you've mentioned a couple of the companies that you've co-founded already, but we just kind of wanted to to dive a bit deeper into that. So building off your work in gene gene editing, you have translated a lot of your research and formed some of the world's most transformative companies. 
in 2016 and 2020, you were named one of the top 20 translational researchers in the world by Nature Biotechnology, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> We'd love to take a moment to dive a little deeper into a few of those companies, including Enitas, Beam Therapeutics, Prime Medicine, Powerwise Plants, and Chroma Medicine, amongst others. The potential upside of treatments using editing are huge. What do you think about the future of public health benefits if these companies' missions are fully realized? Yeah, I mean, if 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 you allow the definition of fully realized to be truly fully realized, then uh, you are describing a future in which we have broad control over the mis over the over correcting the misspellings that cause genetic diseases in hundreds of millions of people. There are hundreds of millions of people now that suffer from genetic disorders caused by misspellings in their DNA that you know they and their parents had no control over. So being able to return some sense of control to those patients, um, to the doctors that care for them, could improve the quality of life of literally hundreds of, of millions of people if fully realized. Now, there is an enormous effort. There's a, a huge amount of work that's required to get even a tiny fraction of the way towards realizing that vision. There are scientific and technological hurdles, many of which we've already talked about. There are also questions of access, of cost, of ethics, of regulation, of what are examples of uses of gene editing that would be widely considered to be ethical, what are examples where it's a little bit less clear, and, and there's really an entire slope in between. It's not a, you know, it's not a black and white issue. There's, in, in some cases, there are, there are fairly shallow slopes, somewhat slippery slopes between disease treatment for patients who are in serious danger of of um, of loss of life or uh, have a very poor quality of life as a result of their disease. Uh, there's a slippery slope between that and disease prevention, and then what some might consider uh, human improvement. So there are no easy answers to these questions. I think most people would agree that if you have a mutation that, for example, gives you absurdly high LDL cholesterol, and you are, as a result, at serious risk of, of having a heart attack or a stroke at an early age, that if there was a way to, to give you a one-time treatment to permanently fix that problem, that it would be ethical to do so. And in fact, some might argue it would be ethical to have that capability and not use it to improve the condition of those people. And that trial is underway. Scientists at, at Verve Therapeutics and Beam Therapeutics are using a base editor to make a precise single letter change in a gene called PCSK9, which virtually all of us have. And the consequence of that A to G single letter change at this one position in PCSK9 is that, at least in monkeys and in mice, the level of LDL, that is bad cholesterol, uh, drops a lot. By maybe two thirds, so gets cut down to one third of of the current level, which is predicted to have a very strong health benefit to patients 
whose lives are jeopardized by risk of cardiovascular disease. And initially, the trial is for people with familial hypercholesterolemia, which is a fancy way of saying people who have mutations in their DNA that predispose them to very, very high levels of cholesterol and coronary heart disease. Uh, but if that trial is successful, then perhaps, uh, and proves to be safe and efficacious, then perhaps it would be reasonable to think about treating patients who are at high risk of having a heart attack, have a family history of heart attacks, or maybe just suffered a heart attack. And if that proves to be, if, if that next phase um, of treating patients proves to be safe and efficacious, then uh, at some point, society will have a conversation about whether healthy people should have this single letter change installed in their PCSK9 genes that will likely permanently lower their LDL cholesterol levels. So that's a, an example that's I, I like to discuss because A, it's real, it's actually happening right now. The first part of it, at least, is an ongoing trial in New Zealand. And and B, it, it demonstrates nicely how, in many cases, disease treatment and disease prevention aren't so different. And in this case, the exact same base editing therapeutic could be used for, for both purposes. Terrific, David, and thank you. A few very fast rapid fire questions here before we come to a closing. One fun question we love to ask our, our guests, I believe it's a, it's a bit uh, open-ended here is that there's no set answer and we're hopefully trying to help our audience come to a greater understanding here. What do you believe like in physics is the grand unifying theory of biology? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm not sure there's quite an analogous theory to the grand unifying theory in physics, but but I think one aspect of biology that has served as a guiding principle and has proven to be very useful in the way that I think about the natural world, at least, and, and in much of our research, is the idea that if you ever have a situation where you have uh, mutation, replication, and some kind of selection, you will, whether you want to or not, have evolution. That simple principle is very explanatory. It explains why I think everybody who appreciates that principle knew that coronavirus would evolve rapidly and robustly once it started circulating in people. It also is how we evolve many of the components of our gene editing technologies and other technologies developed by our lab when they require developing molecules that are too complicated, too difficult to design just by inspection. So in our lab, we concede a lot the fact that certain problems we aren't smart enough to solve, but we are smart enough to develop a system that can evolve the answer for us and tell us what the answers are. And that's how many of the technologies we've already touched on, including adenine base editing and uh, certain kinds of prime editors and certain kinds of proteases that we've evolved to cleave proteins of our choosing as a sort of early step towards editing the human proteome, perhaps, and many, many other examples of, of technologies or proteins or nucleic acids that we couldn't design ourselves from first principles. So we had to design the system instead that evolved them so that the answers would make themselves known to us. That's proven to be a, 
a very useful and powerful philosophy behind much of our work. If you could wave a magic wand, David, what is the single biggest linchpin holding back the gene editing field that you love to unlock? That's a good question. I, you know, the knee-jerk reaction, I'm sure if you ask many people in the gene editing field, the probably the most common rapid-fire response would probably be delivery, meaning how can we get these large molecular machines, these gene editing agents, into the right cells in, in patients? Uh, and for sure, that is a uh, a really important problem. You know, maybe I, I'll say that as, aside from that, I, I worry maybe as much about how access will be provided. We already have tools in nucleases, base editors, and prime editors, the three major ways that we can robustly edit the DNA in mammalian cells that can make virtually any kind of change that is responsible for human genetic diseases, and that can be broadly repurposed to turn on or turn off uh, genes to increase or decrease protein function for biotechnological purposes, for agriculture, et cetera. I, I think the challenge we'll increasingly face is, is not just the scientific ones, like how can we perform efficient targeted gene insertion? How can we deliver these machines into the right kinds of cells in, in patients, but we'll start to become a little bit more cultural and sociological and philosophical, like how can we best provide the benefits of gene editing to patient populations in which each, each subpopulation might only have one person or 10 people or 100 people in it. It's probably not going to be practical to develop 500 different drugs for the 500 different mutations that cause Stargardt's disease, a form of genetic blindness. So we need more creative ways scientifically and technologically to address patients with different mutations. And we need the, the societal mechanisms to ensure that these technologies have a way of benefiting them. So I, yeah, so I, I think the answer, there could be many good answers and some science with respect to editing and delivery are certainly in there, but I think there are some broader societal challenges that will also ultimately determine whether gene editing benefits a tiny slice of, of society or whether we can really eventually bring it to uh, benefit broad segments of society as a whole. David, one question we love to ask our guests here comes from Nobel laureate Dennis Gabor, he says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us quickly, what does inventing the future mean to you? Yeah, I, I, I think that that's a beautiful quote, in part because it really expresses a philosophy that, that I also subscribe to, that you know, one way of looking at the natural world and our relationship to it is as an observer. We can admire, uh, marvel at the beauty, the complexity, the, the function of nature, its ability to solve nature's problems, largely through evolution. But a different way, not mutually exclusive with the first, is to be an active participant, to extract the most important and powerful principles of what we've learned from nature and 
use them to inspire our own creative technologies, to inspire the development of our own innovative solutions to our own problems. Nature didn't evolve CRISPR to treat Alexa, stop. Nature didn't evolve CRISPR to allow humans to treat sickle cell disease. And it, it really takes a philosophy of wanting to invent the future to take these principles and use them, have the, the, the confidence and the knowledge to try to use them for a new purpose to benefit humans that allows us to, to make those leaps as a field. So, so for me, that's really what uh, your, your quote evokes, is this idea that we now have enough knowledge and capability in the life sciences that in certain areas, like in, in this area of gene editing, we can really not just observe from nature, not just marvel and admire nature, but use what we've learned from nature to solve our own problems. David, we touched on so many fun topics today. Thanks for sharing such a great overview of the gene editing field and some of the projects you're working on these days. How can our listeners learn a bit more about yourself and your work? Well, our, our lab has a website, lugroup.us, L-I-U-G-R-O-U-P.us, which uh, has all of our publications, which we make freely available to the public, and a variety of articles written for the general public by uh, various reporters and, and news sources that also summarize some of our work. I was also uh, fortunate to uh, have given a TED Talk, which of course, by definition, is really couched to an interested general audience, as well as a, a talk at the recent uh, CNN Life Itself event, also couched to the general public. Both of those are available online. Terrific. Thank you again, David, for an absolutely amazing episode. We're very grateful for your time and look forward to having you back on the show again here soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It really flew by quickly, which is a sign that uh, I think we were having fun. So I appreciate the invite and, and appreciate your interest. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.